0: It's episode 100 of the Beauty Business Podcast. And it's an unusual one for me because you are the ones doing the interviewing. Yes, I handed over the mic, metaphorically speaking, to you this week to ask me anything. And boy, did you. From how I started working in this industry to what kind of beauty business I'd open right now. So join me for a very special episode. creating the beauty business that you dream of doesn't have to take over your life. It's all about mastering some basic principles and putting in place strategies to give your business the strong foundation it needs to build from. Throw in the right mindset, a handful of proven systems, being willing to stretch your comfort zone just a little, and knowing how to promote and market yourself properly, and your success is inevitable. The problem is, that's not what they taught you when you were learning your skills. So that's what I'm here for. Welcome to the Beauty Business Podcast. Now with over half a million downloads worldwide, it's the number one podcast for the independent beauty business owner dedicated to helping you grow your business to get the clients and the money that you want without all the stress and the worry. Now, my name is Adam Chastley and I've been helping spas and salons all over the world to succeed for over 20 years now. And I'm gonna help you transform your business starting today. Well, who'd have thought it back in 2016, actually 2015, when I recorded the first few episodes, which were then released in 2016, that I'd be here today, four and a bit years later at episode 100. I mean... Most people hadn't even heard of podcasts back then. Actually, weirdly, I only got asked last week how people actually listen to a podcast. So, you know, some things have changed and some things not so much. Anyway, I wanted to do something different for episode 100 to mark this occasion. So, a few weeks ago, I asked you to send me in your questions. Anything you wanted to know at all, nothing was off the cards. I'd answer anything. And boy, did you take me up on it. Now, some of these were really challenging questions. And interestingly, they actually shone a light on something that I still need to work on a bit myself, self-promotion. I'm still not very comfortable talking about me and my story, even though I'm always encouraging my clients to share their story. It's you know still a very daunting thing to do. So this episode has been both a lot of fun, but also a great learning experience for me as well. And I hope because of that, it's a great learning experience for you too. Now, I set up a very simple way for you to record your voice asking me the questions that you wanted to ask, but it would appear that we still have a bit of a a shyness issue going on in our industry. Maybe it was that people didn't want to hear the sound of their own voice, not sure. But initially, I got very few people... You know, recording their questions. But it wasn't until I suggested maybe people wanted to just send me a message and then all the questions started to really come in. Now, to help the episode along, I have asked some very good friends of mine to lend their voice talents and to bring some of the questions that you asked to life for me. So if you sent me in a question on Messenger or in the Facebook group, then you may well hear your question read out by someone who is very special to me. See if you can tell which is which. See if you can tell the real salon owners from. The uh, not so real salon owners. Okay, without further ado, let's get down to it. Here's episode 100 of the Beauty Business Podcast, which we're calling Ask Adam, also known as quite a lot of my story that I have never shared before. Hi, Adam. I'm Alice from Berry, near Manchester. I love the podcast. I only found it during lockdown, but I've been binge listening and learned loads. Um, I'd really love to know, how did you get started working in the beauty industry? Thank you, Alice, for asking that question um, and also for saying you love the podcast, that's great. Now, a few other people asked this question, uh, including Vicky Holmes in the Beauty Business Hackers group. Um, And I'm really glad you did because I think this is a really interesting story. So I'll take you back now 20 and a bit years um, to when I was at university, And uh, when I was at university, I had a number of jobs, a couple that have absolutely no relevance to this story, but I did work in an electrical uh, sales shop and a bowling alley, but that was nothing to do with this. But um, after those jobs, I ended up working at a country club, like a a gym um, uh, with a pool, and it also had a golf club and a restaurant and things like that. Now, this opened up just near where I grew up in a place called Cookridge, just on the outskirts of Leeds. Now, um, I can't actually remember how I ended up applying for this job, but somehow I ended up applying for the job of basically membership sales. So if you've ever been to a fitness club or anything like that, you know, you, you go along and you say, I'm interested in joining. And suddenly this, this membership salesperson comes out and starts talking to you and, and giving you a tour and, you know, asking you lots of questions about your health and, and things like that. So that's basically a job I did for, I think it was about the, the last year and a half of my university degree. Now, my university degree that I did, uh, I did two degrees. I did uh, a kind of a a computer science, IT-related degree. Now, this was back before most people knew what computer science was, and I also did economics and management as well. So, a very sort of of kind of right brain um, sort of education is is what I had. That's where I sort of feel more comfortable on the math side of things. Anyway, um, so I, I did this job, and then I graduated university, and and the kind of programs that people who did my degree were going on to were were things like working for management consultancies like PricewaterhouseCoopers and Capgemini and um, KPMG and, and those sort of big firms. And really, they were going into like another, um, uh, you know, three-year training program, and you still had to, you know, pass an interview and everything to get into these. And I remember going to these these rooms with like hundreds of other, you know, recent graduates, all wearing suits for the first time and and feeling feeling very uncomfortable. Um. So, and I just didn't really fancy that. I didn't. I sort of thought I don't want to spend another three years training, and you know, I'm not entirely sure that this this is something that I want to do. So I didn't really have a solution as to what I wanted to to be when I grew up, essentially. Um, But I quite enjoyed my job working at the the country club. So um, I ended up moving over to the golf club part of it rather than the gym. And I think this is one of those first opportunities where my kind of entrepreneurial side came out because I noticed that they were struggling to get members over at the golf club. And I sort of went to the golf club manager and said, look, I've been working over here at the at the gym for a while and I'm I'm doing okay at membership sales. I'd like to help you get more members for the golf club. And they didn't really have any budget for it. They didn't really have sort of a, a sales role there. It was kind of just presumed that golf members would want to come along and, and just join. Um so I made him a deal. I basically said, look, if I can get you to, uh, I think it was 600 members. I think that that's what they wanted to get to. They wanted 600 members at this golf club. And I think I remember saying something like, look, if I can get to you to 600 members by the end of uh, summer or whatever it was, I, I can't remember, or the end of the season, um, you know, then will you pay me X amount of money um, per month just to do the work? And then a bonus of, it was quite a significant amount. It was, it was a few thousand pounds. Anyway, they, um, they sort of thought about it. They must have thought, well, if he if can do it, then great, and we'll pay him the bonus. And if not, then maybe we'll get a few new members. So I ended up doing this, uh, this, this job that I sort of pitched and created for myself. And uh, I actually did it. I actually did get them up to the, the 600 members that they wanted um, by the end of the, of, of the period of time. But just towards the end of that, um, this chap joined the golf club. Um, his name was Ron. And the sort of tradition was that, you know, a new member joined and I would kind of play the first round of golf with them. By the way, I'm a dreadful golfer. So I'd sort of mainly walked the first round of golf with them. Um, But I kind of took them around the golf course and explained a bit of the history of the golf course to make it all interesting, introduced them to some of the members so that they felt comfortable, you know, showed them around the golf clubhouse, that kind of thing. Um, Anyway, we're we're sort of halfway around the golf course and we're just chatting away. and, And this. He sort of says, "You know what? What's your story? What have you been doing?" So I explained about my degree and, and not really knowing what to do next. And he went, "Well, I actually own a, a software company that provides booking software for golf clubs. And the one problem that we have is we have lots of techie people, um, but we have no one that actually understands what it's like to work in a golf club and have that operational knowledge. So." Longish story short, I ended up going to work for them. That company was called Baron, and at the time, and this is sort of 1999, I went to work for them. They were they were really one of the only software companies in the world that provided uh, booking, you know, computerized booking software for uh, golf clubs. So. So they had all of the really well-known, you know, top-end golf clubs that you'll have heard of from major tournaments being played at and things like that. So so immediately I got to kind of go and spend time at these amazing resorts and hotels and install this software and understand how to make it work better for the people who used it and things like that. And within genuinely, within about 18 months of me going to work there, these golf clubs that were attached to these big five-star hotels started opening up these things called spas. And naturally they sort of said, well, you know, now we need some sort of computerized facility to be able to book people in for these sessions in the spas and for treatments and things like that. And really at the time, nothing existed. There were no systems out there, nothing like there are today. There's a huge choice now, but there really were, were not very many. So this company that I worked for, like I said, Baron. um, said, okay, well, this is a market that's clearly emerging and we want to get into it, but we know absolutely nothing about spas or anything like that. So they needed someone who was on the team, who understood how, you know, the computer software worked, who understood operations, who could translate what was required from a business point of view into language that the developers, the coders, the people who actually wrote the software could understand. Um, and I genuinely remember being at this meeting and they sort of said, Look, we need we need someone to sort of volunteer to head up this this new uh, project that we're gonna be working on to create a system for spas. And I sort of thought, well, I don't really know very much about golf. Um, I'm not like a lot of the people here who love golf. And, you know, part of the enjoyment of working with the golf clubs is to go there and play golf. I'm not very good at it. Um, tend to embarrass myself on a golf course. So I thought, well, this sounds great. Uh, it sounds like a great opportunity, a great challenge, so I'll do it. So genuinely, they kind of dispatched me off to a, a spa for about uh, three months. And I essentially kind of hung around in this spa Understood, you know the business processes that were needed, what needed to happen, and I kept taking all this information back to this uh, the developers, and, and ultimately we created um, probably one of the world's very first spa management systems. That was called Baron. Like I said, didn't have a fancy name; it was just Baron Spa Software you know, that that was kind of the start of that. So for for six years, six, seven years, I worked for that company. And um, that took me to some amazing places. I ended up going to work in Dubai for three years um, as all the hotels and the spas were emerging over there. And that's how I ended up working in some of these incredibly luxurious hotels, including the Burj Al Arab, which you'll you'll recognize if you've ever seen a a picture of Dubai, you'll have seen the, the hotel that's built out on a little island on its own, just shaped like a sail. So I got to work in there as well. So that's really how I ended up um, working in the spa world. Now from there, in 2006, I kind of went out on my own. I'd kind of felt my my time had run its course working with the software uh, company called Baron, And I went out uh, with a desire to essentially want to help spa businesses and hotel businesses, use software the right way. Because by this point, a few other companies had come out with software systems. So I wanted to help them make the right choices to the right software for them that was actually gonna help them grow their business. Because ultimately that's still where my passion lied. It was it was business analysis and the economic side of things using the software for it. Um, but i set up my own company called virtuosity and that was the the plan for that that was in 2006 2007 now obviously small global financial crisis happened at that time so things kind of t- <laughs> took a a long time to get moving but that's what i did for for then the next really kind of 10 years uh, 9 10 years was work with Um, big corporate companies around the world, making sure that they were using the right software, they were getting the most from it, um, and really helping them use the software to analyze their business, grow their business and make more money, make it stronger, um, fill their spars with clients, and just all of that strategy and marketing and business analysis stuff, uh, but really focused on the software. Um, And then probably 2016, something like that, I, I sort of thought, well, you know, I love this. I love enjoying this, but the corporate world had changed quite a bit. It became to the point where, you know, you had to convince 17 different people on four different meetings that, you know, you what you were proposing was actually going to be the right thing for them. And I kind of lost a little bit of love for that, which is when I switched over and, and decided I wanted to start working with the independents because I'd started working with a couple and I realized, you know, the results I could get them were so much quicker and so much bigger because there were less decision makers involved. So we could make a decision much more quickly, put things into place and see those results. So that gave me this taste of working with independence, And ultimately that was the trigger for me creating Salon Business Secrets, which was at the time the the website with the advice on it. And then ultimately this very podcast to help more people. um, And then switching completely into working online via the online courses and the one-to-one coaching that I now deliver. So that's really... um, that's really the the potted history of how I ended up working in the spa world, and obviously along the way, you know, I've I've got more and more involved in certain spa projects, and ultimately been made chairman of the spa association. So, so I really am very, very intrinsically linked with the spa world now. Um And probably try as I might, I couldn't get out of it, but uh, but I wouldn't want to. I absolutely love working in this industry. I love working with the people in here. I think there's still so much we can do, so much we can grow, so much better we can get. Um, So that is that is really how I ended up working in the industry. so a great question. Thank you. You've mentioned before that you used to work in lots of places around the world. I want to know, where's the most unusual place you've worked and also the most luxurious? This question's from Katie, owner of Naked Beauty in Oxford. That's a great question, Casey. And thank you so much for uh, asking that. Um, So I had to have a little bit of a think about this one, actually, when when you asked this question. uh, And uh, just to really come up with it now, actually, both of these, it follows on nicely from um, the story of how I got into the industry and and working for that software company for a few years, because um, because the internet wasn't anywhere near as powerful as it was uh, now back then. You know, you actually had to physically Go to the hotels, go to the resorts, go to the spas to implement the software and and train on it. Now that was brilliant for me because, as a a young man with no kind of um, commitments or or anything like that, it meant I could fly to all kinds of parts of the world and and see some amazing places. So, so I have been incredibly lucky to work in some amazing places around the world. But um, I'd have to say the most unusual place that I worked was quite early on in my career when I was still doing little bits and pieces with the the golf club side of things. And I was dispatched to India of all places to work, uh, to put some software and systems in place at a place that's called Ambi Valley. Now, I imagine it's moved on a heck of a lot since when I was there. And I'm trying to think this is probably around 2004, something like that. But Ambi Valley was, uh, and in terms of geography, it was it was about halfway between Mumbai and a place called Pune, which is uh, on, on the coast of India. So it's about halfway between those. And it was absolutely cut out of the jungle. Um there was there was nothing else around this place this was not you know a, a golf course that had sprung up near a, a metropolitan area this was an entirely man made um town village city even really um now it was owned by a, a very wealthy man in uh, India called Sahara, who owned, I think, TV channels and media companies and all sorts of things like that. And essentially, what he wanted to build was this kind of retreat town for the wealthy people of Mumbai um, to to either live or or have a holiday home or something like that. So the weird thing was, when I was there, it was entirely built. You know, all the houses were built. There was a state-of-the-art hospital. It had its own airstrip. It had its own golf club cinema it had a massive lake that you could go boating on but the weird thing was he had this idea that he didn't want to open it he didn't want to let anyone move in until everything was 100% ready so i was there in this incredibly stunning um you know man-made beautiful place that just had no expense spared putting in place these systems on these golf course, but there was nobody there. There was like the, the skeleton staff of workers. And that was quite eerie. That was quite unusual uh, for me at that time. But the other unusual thing was that this golf course was all built. It was all there. It was floodlit. It was, um, you know, you played it at night because it was so hot during the day. Um, so I got to kind of play golf and I got to, you know, See behind the scenes of this place. But I guess the weirdest memory I have from this was i was I was chatting to one of the greenskeepers. um and he told me that one of the biggest problems that they had on a morning when they kind of would go out onto the golf course um and, you know, make sure everything was okay and and check the grass and all the things that they did was they had to be really careful because the tigers would come out of the jungle. And they would use the, the bunkers um, with filled with sand on the golf course, they would use them to kind of cool off and have a sand bath in the morning because these bunkers were filled with perfectly clean, almost white quartz sand. So they'd be going out in their kind of um, buggies and things on a morning and and lawnmowers and stuff like that. And they'd have to kind of keep a a wary eye out to make sure that they didn't kind of disturb some (laughs) sleeping tiger. And in fact, I didn't believe him so much that I insisted one morning of getting up at 5am in the morning and going out with them. And sure enough, We saw a couple of tigers. We didn't get too near to them, but we did see a couple of tigers. Um, And that was also the time, the only time, fortunately, that when I was training people on how to use the software, that um, a snake joined us in the training room. And whilst... I got quite concerned about this snake and everyone else in the room were quite, you know, chilled out about it because they were used to seeing lots of wildlife. Um when it got to the point where it was getting very close to me and I sort of said, you know, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. I think we need to do something about this snake. Um, they did get up to go and pick it up claiming it was just a grass snake. Then kind of paused and halted and went out of the room and came back with some very, very long um, kind of uh, uh, kind of pincers on the end of a stick to pick the snake up because it turned out it was a cobra. So um, there, was, there was a lot of wildlife related stuff on that trip, but I have to remember that was by far the strangest place that I've ever worked. That was quite an easy one to think about. Now, in terms of the most luxurious, that was a trickier one because again, in that same time, I... Got to work in some, like I said, amazing places. Obviously, I've already mentioned the Burj Al Arab in Dubai, which was just, you know, over the top opulent. But I have to say, for me, the most luxurious place I ever worked was—it um, was an Orient Express hotel's property that was in French Polynesia, in a place called Bora Bora, which you may have heard of. But I challenge you to find it on a map. Um, but it was a tiny little island, tiny island surrounding a volcano in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of, um, you know, probably near Tahiti is, is the, the closest place that people will actually be able to um, identify with. Um, but it's this tiny little place, but it had some luxurious hotels on there. one of them was this, uh, or an express hotel and, uh, they had a spa, beautiful spa in the treetops. So every single treatment room was actually the stunning, um, almost like tree house. Um, so you had to climb up the the wooden steps to get up there. Uh, they were in the trees, they were in this kind of you know tropical rainforest. Um absolutely stunning. I've never seen anything else like that in my life. But that was not only the most luxurious place that I probably worked, but I remember that trip um very, very clearly because I was only supposed to be there for th- five days. Um that's the amount of time that I had to go over there and put the systems in place and, and train the team and you know, make sure everything was running smoothly. And there was a lot of other challenges on, on a, uh, a tropical island as well. So, um, so I was only supposed to be there for, for five days. However, I went in the off season um, where there is only one flight out from Tahiti to Bora Bora a week. It's only one plane. Um, which meant I was going to have to stay there for seven days. So I kind of it was one of these nice trips occasionally that you get where you know I was sent out there to work for five days, but I actually got like a couple of days as a as a bit of a holiday as well, kind of built in. So that was nice already. But it came to the the the, the day that I had to get the plane back to Tahiti and, and fly home, um, and we got this message saying, well, actually, there's a problem with the plane. Um, there's a problem with it's it's. Uh, landing gear or wheels or something like that. And it's it's not going to be able to fly today. It's not going to be able to take off. Now, it's not like they could just send another plane. They didn't have a spare one. And it's not like they could say, oh, we'll come and pick you up tomorrow because obviously it had somewhere else to be. So that meant that I was then stuck on this island for a whole nother week. Now... Obviously, my company weren't entirely over the moon with this, but there was nothing they could do. They couldn't, you know, there was no boat that I could get back. There was no kind of other plane available. So I just had to stay out on this island for another week. So I I will admit, I, you know, felt slightly guilty. So I did a little bit of extra training with the team, but largely I had a, a great time when I was there. And then it came to fly back again. And unfortunately, there was a tropical storm. So the plane couldn't come and get me again. So I ended up with with an extra week on this incredible island that honestly, i there was no way that I was could have possibly afforded to stay on. But I got to stay at this place for three weeks. This is a place that most people, you know, go for a very special occasion uh, for a honeymoon or a wedding anniversary or something like that, and they stay a week. And, uh, you know, I got to stay there for three weeks. I actually ended up, I didn't tell my company this at the time, um, but I actually ended up qualifying and getting my paddy diving certificate while I was there because I had so much time on my hands. Um, I befriended the local dive instructor and I ended up becoming a qualified diver while I was there, which was absolutely amazing. So so another great story. And definitely, you know, in terms of the, the spa itself and, and having all the uh, the treatment rooms up in the trees in these beautiful tree houses, easily, easily the, the, the most luxurious place for me in my memory that I've ever worked. But yeah, great question. And, and thank you for asking me that, Katie. Hi, Adam. So my question is, what is the number one skill a beauty business owner needs starting out in business today, aside from the skills and qualifications to provide their treatments? And this question is from Beverly in Norwich, and my salon is called Aesthetic Beauty. Brilliant question, Beverly. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, and it's a really difficult one as well because, you know, given a lot of the things that I talk about, it's, it's probably going to be for me. It's going to be in in that wheelhouse somewhere. But I was trying to decide on this which would be the one key skill, and I'm actually going to have to say I couldn't make a complete decision. It's definitely one of two. I would say um, number one is some sort of marketing knowledge and understanding, um, because as you all know, if you've heard me say anything, I truly believe that the the one biggest issue that most beauty businesses have, that if they can solve, if they can get right, um, will make absolutely everything about running their business just a lot less stressful, a lot easier, um, and enable them to get to their goals much more easily. And that's basically having the right clients for your business. Not only having the right clients, but having the ones that you want as often as you want, Regularly coming back um, and filling your appointment books. You know, you can have a lot of other things not quite working properly for you in your business, but if you've got full appointment books and the clients are coming in and you've got your prices right, then, you know, you've got a lot of leeway there um, to then improve all the other things over time. So I would have to say, marketing is definitely one skill that you need. Fortunately, there's loads and loads of. ways to learn that now. They still don't really teach it as part of your course, which is, I truly believe they should give you some sort of grounding in it. But, you know, there's there's my courses, there's lots of other people's courses out there that, that can help you with that kind of thing. So I think definitely an understanding of marketing is one key, key skill if you're going to open up your own business, um, your own beauty business that you need to have. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, being able to speak to people, being able to communicate with people and not just, you know, build huge followings on social media, but actually be able to convert those people into people who want to make a booking and come in and become your amazing clients. And then second to that would be numbers. And I know that's a topic that puts lots and lots of people off. And I'm not saying you need to become an absolute maths geek, um, but just being able to understand the numbers within your business, the numbers that you need to know, and what they actually mean I truly believe will serve you so, so, so well. And we'll actually link up with that marketing thing. Because like I said, if you can bring clients in, that's part of your your, your challenge. And then if you know for a fact that you're charging the right prices for your treatments, you know, you can have loads of other things wrong within your business that I would never encourage, but you know, you can have... Lots of other things not quite right in your business, but if you're able to bring in clients and you're charging the right amount of money that's covering, you know, your costs, um, both fixed and overheads and variable costs, and also, you know, with some profit built in there, then you know you're definitely on the right track, and you can refine all the other bits all over time. So I would say, yeah, I would say marketing definitely, and then kind of. Possibly as as a secondary one, um, I would say understanding your numbers, knowing which numbers really make the difference in your business, knowing which ones you need to tweak and pull and change to improve things, and and just easily how to measure them and move them as you go through your career. I think that those are my two skills that I would definitely make sure that you should have some sort of understanding in um, if you want to be successful right out of the gate at opening a beauty business. Great question, thank you. Now, a little fun question that I noticed had snuck in there uh, in the Beauty Business Hackers group, also from Vicky Holmes, who asked a couple of questions. But she said, um, also, I'd love to know what skincare do you use? Because your skin always looks so fresh on your videos, which is amazing. Thank you, Vicky. Actually, um, I think I mentioned this on an Instagram Live I did uh, a few weeks ago, and I actually got a message from the company themselves saying, thanks for the shout out. So I'll do it again. Um, I actually use Kiehl's. which is rather annoyingly not a spa or salon brand. Um and the reason I say rather annoyingly is because usually with the spa and salon brands because I work so closely with them I can usually get some really good deals from time to time from them. But keels rather annoyingly don't work with salons and spas. They tend to work out of their own retail stores and department stores. So I have very very few ways to get any better deals on them. So which is why I was so uh, kind of surprised and pleased when recently um uh, a company that i did a uh, a kind of panel discussion for um, timely software um sent me a lovely kind of hamper of goodies from selfridges and in there was some Keels products um which you know was absolutely amazing the first time i've ever got some gifts of some uh, some skincare products that i actually uh, use generally day to day so yeah i use Keels, facial fuel if uh, if that matters not much else um but yeah that's that's literally all all i use so thanks for asking vicky so now Rebecca asks in the beauty business hackers group, she says, if you had your own time again, would you choose this industry? If yes, what would you do differently with the, with the blessing of hindsight? And then with all of your contacts and experience, are you ever tempted to open your own site? Okay. So, um, would I choose this industry? Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, it's a very tricky one because it's, it's genuinely, like I've said, the only industry that I've ever known. Um, Goodness me! I, I I think I probably, if I if I was somehow able to know what I know now, I think I probably would because I've always said about this industry it's it's so it's so much fun, it's so diverse, it's so quick to change that I think that constantly brings um, you know a level of excitement. I think you can stay in this same industry and do so many different things. I mean, you know, I started out working with software in this industry and and now I'm you know still following the the same line of of passion that I had to go into that but now I'm actually helping business owners which is I I truly believe what my true calling is I enjoy it so much um I get so much out of it I love helping people um I believe I'm pretty good at it so um so I truly believe that's my calling so so would I have chosen this industry I think the only the only other thing that I would have loved to do if I could have done anything would probably be something oddly in the performing arts. I um, I used to love singing. When I was younger, I used to be in a couple of bands. I used to be in... Uh, I Actually, when I was much younger, when I was a teenager, I actually used to sing in operas, um, which not many people know. I've never told, told anyone that really. Um, so yeah, I used to love singing. I used to love kind of being on stage. Um, I never really got to do a lot of acting, but I always thought it looked like a lot of fun. So I think if I could have genuinely just picked to do anything, I would have loved to do something in the lines of performing arts. But as an industry, as a business, um, if I was going to go into business, yeah, I think I would definitely choose this industry. Um, again, if I if I had kind of the knowledge. and um, What was the next bit of the question? Um, what would I do differently with the blessing of hindsight? Um, what would I have done differently? I think I would have moved into doing what I'm doing now much sooner. i I would have loved to have figured out earlier that my my real passion was was actually analyzing businesses and and seeing seeing what needed improving and then helping business owners to change them. so i I, I genuinely wish. Years ago, I had changed to becoming more of a coach, more of a consultant to the independent side of the of the beauty industry. Not too much earlier, because I think a lot of the skills that I've learned, you know, I, I always say I was incredibly lucky to to travel around the world to work with some incredible spa managers, some incredible consultants, and I learned a lot from them. You know, a lot of the skills that I bring to the clients that I work with now are, are through lessons that I've learned there. So, so you know, really. And this is one of the things I always say about when you work with a coach or when you work with a a mentor or someone like that. You know, you are essentially borrowing their 20, 25 years worth of knowledge that they've kind of. Amassed through working with other people who've had previous years worth of knowledge. So, you know, if I were to add up all the incredible managers and consultants and business owners that I've learned from over the time, you know, there's hundreds of years worth of of knowledge there that that you can bring then to working with the clients that I work with now. So, so I don't think I would have done it much sooner. But yeah, I, I, I think probably maybe three or four years earlier, I wish I'd have moved into first of all, working with independents and also moving more into the coaching role that I enjoy and love so much now. And then your final part of your question, with all of your experience and contacts, you have attempted to open your own sites. I absolutely am, Rebecca. And I'll be honest with you, every every couple of years, I seriously look at it again. Um, And I can tell you for a fact, in the last four years, I have got to the point of Bidding on a property. Um, so there about three or four years ago, I, I identified a property that I l- would love to have um, created a, a a small spa within. Um, and I got to the point of actually bidding on the contract. Um, ultimately, the numbers, because as you know me, the numbers had to make sense. Ultimately, um, the numbers that the, 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 the owning company wanted um, just didn't quite add up. There wasn't quite enough um, margin in there. So that didn't go ahead. Um, And then actually in the start of this year, in February, I almost, almost um, took over uh, a spa uh, that's based up here in the north. But again, that didn't quite work out in the end. I actually decided, so that was actually my decision in the end. I realized that I loved doing what I'm doing right now. I love the coaching that I'm doing with business owners. I love helping people through the course. I love doing the podcast. And what I realized if I had taken over this business... Even though that it was already a functioning business, there was there were some aspects of it that would have needed a lot of my time and effort to um, to change and you know build up. And I think at the time I realised that it it was essentially going to be a full time job for me for a decent period of time, for probably six to twelve months, to get this business to where I I knew it needed to be. And honestly, I didn't want to give up doing the things that I'm doing now so I decided not to go ahead with that but but yes Rebecca genuinely I I do keep having that thought and I'm absolutely never saying never on that if the right opportunity comes up again if I come across it and it's the right time then I would absolutely love to go back into operations and, and open up my own site um so yes that that's definitely something that's that's still always always at the back of my mind and I'd love to do so I hope that answers your question Rebecca Now then, a great question to follow on from that last one from Rebecca is uh, one that came in from Gina from South Carolina. She just sent me this uh, as a messenger message. And she says, my question is, if you were to open up a beauty business today, Adam, what would you focus on? What would you offer? What location would you choose? And how big would it be? Uh, And that is from Gina in South Carolina from studio number two. And she says she loves the podcast and she can't wait to hear this episode. She thinks it's a great idea. Well, thanks, Gina. Um... Brilliant question. Again, thank you. It's like four questions in one, so I'll try and go through them in order. So like I said, if I were to open up a beauty business today, um, it would very much be as... uh, It would kind of be a bit of a passion project, but it would also be... Kind of a bit of a business experiment to prove a lot of the things that I teach, you know, you guys, and talk about all the time. So it would, it would very much be a business experiment. It would very much be a test bed for the business strategies, and you know, it would ultimately it would be a money making opportunity. I, I truly believe every business um, it shouldn't necessarily be the only goal, but uh, you know, one of the major goals should be to make money. So it would definitely be as a money making opportunity. Um, so I think I'd have to look at. Um, you know, starting with that, starting with the why. You know, why would I be looking to open up this business? And it would be that. It would be the business experiment. It would be a bit of passion, and also to make some money. So, based on that, it would be it would definitely offer a, a offer a variety of different treatments, um, different services. You know, because that's exactly how I teach you guys. You've got to be able to offer a different variety of treatments so that you can serve the same clients. You know, not only get them back uh, regularly for having you know the core treatments, the core services of what you do, but but being able to offer them other things as well. So there would definitely be a, a small variety of treatments um, that I would look to offer. Um, but at this particular point in time, it would primarily be focused on lashes and brows. Mainly because of the margins that are involved in that business at the moment. I think you've all heard it. I've mentioned it several times on the podcast, you know. Um, I've recently been embraced by the, the the world of lashes. And, you know, I've been amazed at just how passionate they are, just how much growth there is in that sector, the margins that are involved in it, the opportunities that are still there. Um, and you know, in the world that we're in right now, that seems to be the one sector that is doing incredibly well because You know, whilst we're all a bit limited in in physically meeting up with people, depending on where you are in the world and and the situation of of, um, uh, lockdown wherever you are um you know people are still meeting on video conference on linkedin on facetime all these different things so the one thing that they're still able to show off uh, about um and you know feel amazing about is you know their lashes and their brows and things like that so it's it's still and i feel it's a very very strong place to be in at the moment so i, I would definitely focus it primarily on lashes and brows but i would also have um some other treatments involved in there as well. Um, What was the next part of the question? It was, um, what location would you choose? Oh, interesting one again. So I would actually kind of, I'd always look to book the trend a little bit. So I would probably say I wouldn't choose a a typical high street uh, location. I would actually look to choose somewhere definitely, definitely near a major metropolitan area. So you've, you've got the numbers of people to bring in. Um, but I would actually base it slightly outside of that area. I would make sure it was somewhere a little bit unusual. So it had its own, you know, even the building, uh, the location had its own kind of brand identity. So it was somewhere a little bit unusual. Um, I'd make sure it had its own parking. I think that's hugely important. Um, generally speaking, but, but especially in today's world, um, I would, yeah, like, like I say, make sure it had some characters, some of its own kind of brand identity, something that didn't look like a typical beauty business. So it would stand out, you know, very, very clearly and, and almost, almost lend itself to having lots of imagery and, and photography taken. Now, size-wise, um, I definitely want to build in some flexibility in there. So I'd want it to have multiple rooms. So I could definitely offer those different treatments. And I'd probably look to employ somewhere between six to 10 full-time equivalent staff positions. So it might have more staff than that. A lot of them may be part-time. In fact, that probably would be a better way to go because then I'd have all that flexibility as well. Um, but I'd, I'd look to have, you know, six to 10 full-time positions so that, so that it had that scalability, um, but also flexibility as well. Now, like I said, because it would be a, a kind of an experiment, a test bed, right from the very start, I think one thing that I'd be thinking of was I'd, would I be testing and creating and and documenting all the strategies and everything that I put in place to both create and build the business up so that once successful, I'd either be able to open up multiple branches if I wanted to, you know, straight away in different locations, you know, if it proves it makes money, if it proves it's successful, why would I not do that if I'd already done all the hard work? Possibly if I didn't want to do that, if I'd kind of gone, right, tick that box, I've done it, maybe then I'd franchise it. But because we've got all the systems in place, you know, that will be easy to do. Or in case I wanted to move on to another project, you know, it'd all be bundled up, it'd all be ready to go. And I'd maybe just look to sell it and, and move on and, and create something else. So that's just off the top of my head. But that's that's kind of the things that I would be thinking of if I were to be going into starting up um, my own beauty business uh, from scratch. Hope that answers your question, Gina. So back over in beauty business hackers, Kate Sawley asked a question, and she said, "How important do you feel consistent professional branding is to salons?" Um, well, I mean, not surprisingly, it's extremely important these days. I mean, there's a lot that's changed over the last six months in you know the world, but in our industry as well, and you know even before. This year, we were all saying, you know, your your website, your online presence is your new shopfront. You know, people do walk past salons and, and local businesses now and kind of look at what they look like on the outside. But, but the vast majority, well over eighty percent of people, however they discover you, even if they do drive past you or walk past your uh, your local business, before they even consider calling you dropping in, anything like that, they will check out your website and they will check out your social media profiles. And if your branding is not strong, is not well-identified and is not consistent across your platforms, all that's going to do is create an element of confusion for that potential new client. And it's going to reduce their desire to want to find out more. Now, I'm not saying you have to have you know some incredible creative agency come in and you know um, spend a fortune on your design work, but you need to have a, a unique identity. You need to have something that that enables you to stand out from everyone else, and you need it to be consistent across your social media platforms. So there's no point in you know randomly using one set of colours and fonts and things on your Instagram channel and then an entirely different you know look and feel on your Facebook page, and then you know have this website that's you know 10 years old. Uses an entirely different random set of colors and doesn't bear any resemblance to, you know, your Facebook page. I'm not saying that's going to, you know, cause nobody to book in with you. But all I'm saying is that if you have that consistent flow across your business, you know, in the in any printed material you have, in any posters you put out, in any adverts you put out there, in your social media, in your um, on your website, you know, if it's consistent across there, if it all feels the same and it all feels whatever it is that your brand identity is, whether it's relaxed, whether it's edgy, whether it's young, whether it's funky, whether it's retro, you know, if it all feels the same, that's all going to then just more strongly appeal to that person who is your ideal client as they sort of check out your website, your social media, all that kind of thing. So so having that consistent look, that consistent brand is just essential Really, these days. Um, it's not necessarily gonna be you know be the difference between you getting clients and not getting clients, but it's certainly gonna mean, you know, it's easier for you to get clients. It's easier for you to connect with the people you wanna connect with because as soon as they see any of your stuff, they will know it's for them. And they will know okay, well, if I hop from your Instagram to your website, yes, this is still for me. I, I want now more to call you. I want now to go onto your online bookings and make that booking for whatever it is that I do, because I feel this is absolutely the right thing for me. If they get that feeling on Instagram and then they go to your website and suddenly it doesn't feel like it's for them anymore, they're not going to take it any further. So I hope that answers your question, Kate. Also in the Beauty Business Hackers group, Sarah Louise asks... Uh, what is the smallest and the largest size company you have successfully helped? Uh, Sarah Louise is from Athiva Beauty. Thank you, Sarah. Um, had, to, had to have a think about this one again. And I think I'm pretty sure that the biggest company that I ever worked with, well, it kind of depends on on how you judge biggest. So the biggest company that I've worked with and helped was in terms of number of sites. Was probably Virgin Active, um, who you probably all heard of. So Virgin Active, uh, mainly known for their gyms, um, but here in the UK, at least, uh, a good proportion of their gyms had um, either a, a salon or a spa um, built into them, and for a number of years, around about six or seven years, I was a consultant for Virgin Active, helping them improve their business offering in terms of the spa that we worked with there. Now, at the height of when I was working with them, we had uh, around about sixty sites, so that was probably the biggest that I've ever worked with. And we we greatly increased their their turnover. I think we added about three hundred thousand. Um, profit to that business uh, over the time that I worked with them. Um, unfortunately, that, that a lot of what we did there was actually to uh, improve the business for a sale. So a lot of those actually got sold off. So gradually they became um, smaller and smaller within Virgin Active. But that's probably the biggest that I've worked with in terms of number of sites, probably the biggest in terms of um money wise was i worked for a number of years with orient express hotels like i mentioned um i actually went back and worked with them as a consultant as well um and i helped them with i think they had nine properties worldwide um but in terms of luxury they were easily the 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 biggest you know group value um in terms of money and we probably added several millions to their their overall revenue as well. So that's probably the biggest two companies that I've worked with in the past. In terms of the smallest, I probably took a bit more thinking about actually, because over the past few years, I've worked with um, a few smaller companies, some I even worked with before they even started out. So before they were even making any money, but I thought I'd go with um, someone who I've helped just very, very recently this year, in fact. Um, And that is a lovely lady called Chris from Body and Soul Therapy. Based in the northeast of England. And she very, very kindly sent me some figures um, recently. I'm not going to share with you the exact figures, but what I will say is um, she actually compared her August from last year uh, figures with her August from this year, obviously bearing in mind everything that's gone on this year. But she sent me a message and and said she was doing. No, I won't go into the figures, but what I will say is that her her August this year is 82% up on her figures from August last year. Um, And Chris. She works on her own, has her own therapy business. Uh, She works out of another salon, and uh, that's probably the smallest business, certainly recently that I've helped to uh, greatly increase their figures. And I couldn't be happier. I love to work with uh, with independents like that. So hopefully that answers your question, Sarah Louise. My name is Jalisa M. I am from Chicago. I am a licensed hairstylist. My dream is to become a beauty. Business owner, my question for you is, during your process, what were your biggest adversities and how did you persevere through them to get to where you are now? Jalisa, thank you so much for your question. A really tricky one, actually. Probably of all of them, the one that I had to really think about and make some notes for um the most. Now I have to say, in terms of adversities, I think I've been pretty lucky in my career. I've um, you know, I've had some very happy accidents, don't get me wrong. Um, I've had lots of amazing experiences, like I've I've said, and I've shared some of those with you. Um, I think probably being being able to spot a good opportunity is a good thing. And, you know, being willing to to move and shift to do that. I think that's, that's um, served me very well throughout my career on different projects and things like that. Um, I've been very fortunate. I've only had a few negative experiences in my career, and I hope that I have learned from all of those. Um, I'd have to say on a personal level, my biggest adversities have been... Um, a little bit limiting beliefs. You know, we've, I've spoken about on the podcast about imposter syndrome and I don't really think it's that for me. Um, but I do think you kind of, you, you get stuck at a certain point in terms of your, uh, achievements and what you feel you are, um, kind of worthy of and entitled to. So at several points I've found, you know, if I've tried a new project or I've tried something new, you know, even with the podcast, even with, you know, my business secrets i've sort of only aimed to get it to maybe the the same sort of revenue level i was earning you know previously rather than you know aiming for much higher than that and i always find when you aim much higher when you set your goals you know slightly beyond even what you think is kind of realistic you know you're you're shooting for a, a bigger goal so you're actually more likely to reach you know your existing um levels much much quicker so I've definitely suffered from slightly limiting uh, limiting beliefs in the past, um, and I'd say I've only recently come to actually understand those as limiting beliefs and and realize, you know, with that hindsight that that has potentially um, held me back a little bit and uh, you know stopped me making much quicker progress over time. So that's definitely something that I've dealt with. Um, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I've I've dealt with the old shiny object syndrome. Um, I, I've definitely started projects, uh, that I should have probably really focused on and, uh, you know, really kind of doubled down on, but maybe got distracted by something else and gone over and done a bit of that and then come back and done a bit of this and gone over and done a bit of that. So that's, that's definitely something I struggle with and and still struggle with to this day. And in terms of how to deal with that, um, I have to say that the best thing that I do that I wish I could be 100% consistent with all the time is, I mentioned it before, you know, using my daily planner. I always find when I'm in that habit of using my daily planner every single day, I am so much more focused and so much more productive because I plan my day out and I, to the most, you know, to uh, to the best of my abilities, stick to that day. Whereas days where I either get distracted early on and don't plan my day out or, you know, don't make time to plan my day out for, or even my week you know those are the days those are the weeks where i sort of get to the end of it and go i'm not really sure what i did this week i'm not really sure where i moved forwards so those are the weeks that then i get to the end and i remember i really should plan out my time and i will be 100% honest i'm i'm a lot better at consistently planning my time than i used to be but i am by no means perfect if i could plan my time out religiously every single day i know i would you know be able to focus a lot more and and get a lot more done in a shorter period of time. Um, I absolutely know it, and and why I don't do that every day. I still can't answer that question. But that is that is one thing I say uh, has has. Kind of curbed my shiny object syndrome um, and things like that. Procrastination, another one. You know, I, I talk about it a lot, and I try and talk people out of it a lot. But I suffer with that too. And as a as a bang up to date example, this very episode, I was I was encouraged to do this by the people in my group coaching plan. You know, they they thought it was something that we should do for episode one hundred. I was a little bit resistant, but people seemed to think it was a great idea, so I said, "Let's do it." But I've put off recording these answers. You know, these questions have been coming in now for the past sort of week to 10 days. And I have really put off sitting down and recording the answers to these questions that you're listening to right now, because I think it's a little little bit uncomfortable talking about yourself and talking about your experiences. So I mean, even this morning, I, I did several jobs that I absolutely didn't need to do today, even though when I sat down this morning and I planned out my day, I set myself this target of this podcast has to get recorded today. And I still managed to try and put it off for about half an hour. So yeah, procrastination is still something that I struggle with. And again, I think the thing that's helped most with that has been, you know, the planning, the journaling, uh, the reviewing of a week as well. It's not just about planning your day, but making sure at the end of the week, you go back and look over your plans and give yourself a score as to how well you did, because that's the only way that, that hopefully then it, it convinces you to keep that habit and keep doing it next week, because you know, the weeks that you plan, you always get a lot more done. So I'd say, I'd say that's, that's really one of the, the biggest adversities I've, I've had in my career. Um, in terms of sort of professional ones, you know, a couple of, couple of bad decisions in there, won't go into details on them, but you know, there was a a business that I started with a couple of other people and I I will have to say that I maybe struggle a little bit with overtrusting. Um, I fully believe that we were both had the same goal. Um, I fully believe that we're both working to the same thing. Um, and, and ultimately it turns out that, that, you know, two of the Business partners had a different agenda to me, and uh, ultimately, it didn't. It didn't work out. It didn't. It didn't end up being a very good partnership. So, so I ended up moving away from that. Um, now, that in and of itself opened up new doors for me, and it's brought me to where I am right now. So, so it's not a regret. I, I always say you should never have regrets um, because you know hopefully you do everything for a reason, and even the things that you do accidentally hopefully lead on to new opportunities. So, as long as you learn from those mistakes. Um, I think everything is valuable in your life and in your business. So, so yes, that that was definitely the a negative experience I had in business. Um, but I've learned from that now. I'm always, you know, I've been offered various partnership deals since then. And that has made me in, initially very wary of doing them. It hasn't completely put me off doing them, but I do make sure um if I've ever entered into a, a sort of partnership type deal again, that everything is very clear going in everyone's responsibilities are very clear everyone's goals are very clear and that we make sure that we actually regularly check in and we stick to those goals and controls and things are in place and i always make sure that there is a suitable exit strategy so that if things aren't working out there's an easy way to kind of move on and, and not linger in something that um, that isn't really your passion that isn't really kind of adding to your life so so that that's really what i'd say there is you know procrastination, a little bit of limiting beliefs, um, hopefully fixed by by the the planning and the journaling and just learning from any any negative experiences that you do have. Just learn from them so that you don't make them again. And I think that is the best way to move forward. And I and I think the thing that keeps me moving forward is just it's just the excitement of it really and the opportunities that, that are there. And really the experimentation, just seeing what constantly works. And, you know, if something doesn't work, yeah, I'm guilty of kind of lingering in there and wallowing for for a little bit. But as long as you eventually do pick yourself back up and get on the horse and all that kind of thing, then I think it's all it's all valuable life lessons. So I hope that answers that question uh, for you, Julissa. And thank you very much for for asking that. Now, I think we're getting on for time here just a little bit. So I think we'll make this the last question and we'll go with uh, a question from Adele from Waterlily Beauty in Rotherham. Hi, Adam. This is Adele from Waterlily Beauty Salon in Rotherham. just wanted to say that I am a huge fan of the podcast. You're doing a fantastic job. Um, My question is that I would love to know, what do you think has changed the most in the industry since you started working within salons and spas? Really great question, Adele. And again, had to to have a good think about this because... Yeah, I mean, it's changed so much. There's, it's like what to particularly focus on. I mean, as I said, right back at the start of this episode, I started working, um, w- w- you know, with... Resorts and things before spas were, were anything like mainstream. You know, there were there were only a few that existed back when I started, um, and you know, a lot of them were were called you know health clinics and health farms and and things like that. So, so I'd have to say one of the biggest things that's changed is obviously the the um prevalence of spas and beauty salons. You know, there's a lot more of them now than there were before. Um so that's definitely increased. You know, the the size, the number of them as well as the size. You know, there's some spas nowadays that are huge um, and, and multi-million dollars operations in their own right. Um and equally there are there are some much smaller spas, you know, boutique spas that um you know that take you know, say only twelve, twelve to fifteen people a day, um, and so I love that there's that diversity there. So there's definitely the 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 prevalence of spas, the prevalence of salons, and the diversity is is certainly something that's changed. Um, I think the reason and the emphasis and the perception for spas and salons has changed too. You know, it's 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 not just about pampering now, which was very much certainly the outside perception when I started. You know, something that maybe the rich and the famous did, and something that kind of quote unquote, normal people only ever did for uh, a special treat, like for a birthday or or something like that. You know, I genuinely think now that the service that that we offer in this industry are becoming much more of a lifestyle choice. And again, this has been highlighted this year with what we've been through, you know, the, the mental health benefits of everything that we offer in the, in this industry, even things that on the, again, on the outside are, are felt as cosmetic, you know, the, the way that those things make you feel really does have an effect on, on your, your self-image and your mental health and how you feel and all those kind of things. So, so I do love the fact that, you know, what we offer in this industry is really becoming a lot more of a lifestyle choice for people as well and you know even even the, the the products themselves are becoming a lot more results focused than you know they used to be it used to be again it was about kind of the when it came down to the the creams and the serums and things like that it was a lot more about what felt nice rather than the results that they actually delivered and now it's it's so much more about the results that uh, 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 the the products are capable of so kind of everything has moved on in in that sense um numbers wise i mean you know again a study came out this year in the UK on the value of of the industry nearly 30 billion pounds the beauty industry is worth just in the UK i mean in in the US it must be worth easily 10 Twenty times that. Who knows? Uh, I'm sure there's a study out there, but yeah, the, the money that's involved in the industry is phenomenal now, and I just think there continues to be so much opportunity out there. So, so definitely the the numbers have increased as well, and um, you know, diversity. There are so many different treatments and protocols and services. You know, even amongst uh, a range of products, uh, a range of treatments, like say facials, there are so much so much diversity in there, um, so much specialism that's on offer, you know, that you really can still create uh, a business in your area and, and offer, you know, be the only person offering a particular service or a particular type of treatment, which can only help you stand out and things like that. So again, so much diversity that's that exists now, so much specialization. And I love as well, um, some of the really old therapies that are, are making a comeback. I was speaking to, I was doing a, a podcast interview just yesterday about halo therapy and you know the fact that that's been around for hundreds of years, um, but now it is ma- making a real comeback, um, in people's day to day lives, in people's home lives, uh, people are installing halo therapy rooms in their houses. More spas are getting on board with it, more salons are. Um, so, you know, I, I'm loving that these old therapies are kind of coming back as well. Um, but I think, in terms of for people, I think the flexibility. I really do. You know, uh, I mean, I'm a huge advocate now for the independent beauty business owner. And I truly believe that at any size of business, you can be successful. You know, you can be incredibly successful, earn a very, very good living, you working as a, a a beauty therapist or an esthetician on your own. And I just love the flexibility that that offers. You know, you, depending on what your goals are in life or, or what's important to you, you know, you create a career that delivers you the money, offers you the time, offers you whatever ever other flexibility is that, that you want in your life and in your career. So so I do, I just think that, that those things um, are certainly things that have changed. But again, all add up to, to me feeling that this is just the best industry to work in. And I'm so pleased and so proud that I, yes, accidentally fell in into working in this industry, but, but that I have stayed with this as the only industry that I've ever worked in because it is just so rewarding, so flexible, so much fun. Uh, and, and I love how much passion everyone has. So I hope that answers your question. Adele, we're just about to hit the the hour mark here. Obviously, my uh, my amazing editor Jib will, uh, <laughs> I'm sure, cut out some of my ramblings. But I just want to say to everyone, thank you so much for the last hundred episodes. Um, it has been amazing. I don't think even I thought when I started out four years ago um, doing these episodes that I would hit the 100 mark. And I know that you know other uh, podcasts have gone on to hundreds and hundreds of. Uh, episodes since I started. But um, more than anything, I hope that I've kept the the quality of these episodes up and I hope to be doing at least another 100 more. Um, And I just wanna thank you for staying with me. I wanna thank you for all the reviews, the emails that you send me, the messages that you send me saying how much I've helped. And I just really love to say, if you are listening to this, if you found this recently, please go back and listen to, to some of the other episodes. Um, it's really easy to see which are the ones that are most listened to. You can just look on, on Apple iTunes and things like that. But what I would say is if you think these these podcasts would help someone else that you know, please, please, please share this with them. Um, and tell me what you'd like to hear more of as well. Um, this has been a very different episode for me. It's taken me 100 episodes to get here. Um, it's been, like I say, a little bit uncomfortable, but I've enjoyed it and I hope you have as well. But please let me know what you want more of over the next 100 episodes. How can I help you more? What topics do we need to cover? What topics do we need to go back over again? Because we have covered quite a lot. Um, you know, what guests do you want me to bring on? Uh, how can I help you more through this podcast? So, Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my story and and these questions and and my thoughts and beliefs about our industry. And I just want to say, you know, keep going, keep the passion, and, you know, things are going to get back to normal again. Don't worry. And uh, I will be back again soon.